Hello and welcome to the latest Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust Handbook. This week, there is no Simon Elliott again. He's still on holiday, but I'm delighted to say we have a, a more than adequate replacement in the form of Peter Hewitt, who is the manager of the BMO Managed Portfolio Trust. This is an interesting vehicle, which has two share classes, one an income share class and another a growth share class. And uh, Peter's been managing this trust, which only invests in other investment trusts since its launch in 2008. And he's had so many years of experience before that as well in the sector. So looking forward to talk to him about some of the recent announcements and developments in the sector, as usual, uh, and to hear what he thinks about the markets and uh, what he's been doing with his two portfolios, the growth and the income portfolio. Before I do that, though, I must just start by apologizing for the poor sound quality that you may experience at some points during this particular podcast. This is down to some technical issues, but uh, I apologize to anyone who has any difficulty with uh, hearing what we're saying this week. I'm going to kick off by talking about the markets and what's been happening this week. It's been a relatively quiet week again, not that many announcements to deal with. And the market was drifting down slowly. The FTSE also was drifting down slowly this week, but it did have a sharp fall on Thursday. It fell by more than 1%, but did recover on Friday. Similar sort of story with the S&P 500, which was also drifting down, but did finish the week strongly. The investment trust sector has pretty much tracked that. Discount has widened a little bit over the week on aggregate, but overall, it's still lagging the FTSE All Share so far this year by three or four percentage points. But uh, interesting developments in the sense that the pound has been weakening and we've seen some further style rotation driven by events around the world. Peter, first of all, before we move on, I thought I might just get your thoughts on where we are in the market cycle at the moment. Obviously, this week we've seen a bit of a sell off in the equity markets. There's been, uh, uh, with something which is not a total surprise, I don't think, to me or to you, because the markets have been pretty steadily, consistently rising this year without much of a drawdown. But where do you think we are at the moment in the market cycle? Have you got any general thoughts on that point? Well, Jonathan, good afternoon. It's a great honour to be on your podcast. I will do my best to uh, outline my views here for you. And I do think that of late, the risk appetite of investors has diminished. You could even say evaporated in some cases. And I think there's a number of reasons behind that. And one of the ones, to be honest, perhaps less apparent for the UK, but more so for overseas markets, is the Delta variant in COVID-19 does remain a big worry for investors right now. There's no question about that. And to some extent in the United States, but certainly um, overseas, emerging markets, Asia Pacific, and clearly Australia and New Zealand, it's still an issue. So although we think we've kind of moved on here in the UK and to some extent Europe, I wouldn't quite put that to one side for the rest of the, the world. And of course, the question of waning vaccine efficiency has perhaps increased the level of risk in terms of the outlook in comparison to a few months ago. 
And then on top of that, there's nervousness about possible tapering by the Federal Reserve in America. By that, I mean reducing the amount of monetary support that um, the Federal Reserve and, to be honest, other central banks, the Bank of England and the, the ECB in Europe, supplies to the economies and then on to financial markets. And you'll hear more about this as we move through into the autumn. But next week, there's a big sort of powwow of all the federal governors in the US. And the worry is that something might come out of that, which perhaps may hasten the advent of some tapering. In other words, stopping doing so much purchases of bonds with a view ultimately perhaps to increasing interest rates in the US. Now, that in itself is not something that should completely derail markets, but you can be sure in this uncertain time that that will be accompanied by quite a lot of volatility in financial markets. And it wouldn't surprise me if we had a a month or two of quite a sharp sell-off on the back of that. Um, You've also got potential slowing of Chinese growth. They've got problems with um, COVID as well. And so it it kind of, you know, there's more negatives than positives out there. The positive, I would have to say, and just to underline for you, have been really stunning corporate results in the UK, a lot of Europe, and also in the United States, way better than estimate. And that's great. And that's not just been in one particular sector. It's been really across the board in many different areas of the economy. And that's very positive. And estimates have been really well and truly beaten. And so that's very encouraging. And what I would just say to remind people, if you think I've been overly negative, I just think it's unlikely you get a serious bear market starting when corporate profits, earnings and dividends are doing so well currently and likely to still do quite well for certainly the rest of this year and into next. So my feeling is that, yes, there's a bit of a risk-off stance on, on markets currently. I think some uncertainty but not wholly negative at all. I think there are some quite positive signs which we can kind of hold on to, Jonathan. So it's a bit of a two-way pull going on here, you could say. As you say, the fact that we've had these strong earnings uh, results from companies ahead of the estimates of most analysts on the one hand and the uh, the fears about what uh, either the Fed might do or what the Delta variant might do around the rest of the world. So it's a bit of a, a push-me-pull-me kind of thing. Uh, but the markets have been pretty strong this year. There's been quite a lot of momentum behind them. So, as you say, it wouldn't be a surprise. It wouldn't necessarily mean the end of the world. But uh, we could just be seeing a little bit more realism come perhaps into some of the valuations and so on. Yes, I mean, I think it, it's, it, you know, I don't want to overplay it, but you could easily have a month where markets were down 5%. And that would get a lot of headlines in the Financial Times and it would perhaps worry some people. But actually, in the cause even of returns of this year, they would still be positive. So I wouldn't overplay that. Just a word on valuations. The US market, it's the most expensive. It's on a forward PE of somewhere around 21, 22 times, which even for the US is quite high. But it is coming down. And if the rate of earnings growth is projected forward, you, you could see that coming down 
relatively quickly to, to well under 20. And just so your listeners can kind of put that in context, in the UK, we're on a PE of around about 13, 14 times, and profits are going very strongly also. So that's why when you look ahead, the likes of UK equities, to some extent European equities, they're up more 16, 17 times. But the UK in particular does look quite attractive. And just one other point to make, isn't it interesting the amount of corporate activity that's going on in both the, the, the FTSE 100 and the FTSE 250 um, just now as private equity companies are bidding for large, well-known UK names like Morrison's, for example, the, the large supermarket, but also you see it in industrial, uh, defence electronics, we've seen Megat, Ultra Electronics on the other end of a bid just now. And that tells you that a lot of global overseas investors see the UK as really quite attractively valued. That's a big support for the UK market as well that when you get some, some bids and deals. So we should bear that in mind. Indeed, we will. So what we're going to do is we're going to quickly run through some corporate announcements this week. And there are one or two where I think I would like you to offer a comment, if I may, Peter, before we talk about what you've been doing in your trust uh, in this context. So I thought we might just kick off and mention one of the announcements this week, which is really more for old timers than anybody else. And this is the latest news from Electra Private Equity. That's a ticker ELTA, which is an investment trust that... Uh, it was probably uh, well, it was one of the largest when you first started working in the, in the city and is now, of course, in the process of effectively almost putting itself out of business. Uh, they made an announcement uh, this week, a further announcement about their plans to um, remove the final rump of the this once uh, important private equity trust. What can you remember about Electra from the old days? Was that one you ever looked at? And, and why it's strange if you well, had this fall from grace. It certainly did, and it's, it wasn't a bad trust. It has some decent returns. I seem to remember when activists got involved with it, that focuses on the cost side of things, and, and that probably did detract a bit from returns. But it was perfectly reasonable over the years, and it didn't give bad returns at all. And so now you see it's returned quite a lot of cash to shareholders, and there's really not much left. I don't know the size of it in terms of pounds, million, but it's on the way out. And all I could say is, as a serious investment proposition, it's probably not anymore because it's got a very short list of stocks. I think it's on the way just to realising that. Well, it is, and it's returned more than £2 billion to shareholders since this sort of decision to, to liquidate it effectively. There's only two companies left, one of which is called Hostmore PLC, and that's being got rid of and being demerged. And then there'll be one company left called Hotter Shoes, and that is going to be uh, renamed. And so Electra will be renamed the Unbound Group PLC, and the only thing it will own will be this investment in Hotter, uh, which is going to be listed on AIM. So it's it's gone all the way from being a very large investment trust, one of the largest investment trusts actually back in the day, to the, having a single company investment on AIM. So, I mean, you could argue, I suppose, both ways. You could say it's a good example of how even the biggest uh, investment trust can be held to account and forced into action. But even so, it's a, it is a remarkable story uh, how this once great name is effectively disappearing. Well, let's move on and talk about another announcement this week we've heard, where we've heard from both Civitas Social Housing and Triple Point Social Housing. They've been having some issues with the regulators. We've talked about this with Simon in the past. Uh, I think you own one of these trusts. Is that right, Peter? Yes, that's right. 
Jonathan, I'm a shareholder in, in Civitas Social Housing. Yes, I, I read that with some interest that the regulator of social housing had, had sort of warned that one of the housing associations who operate some of the properties that Civitas owns, that they were raising concerns about its financial viability. Now, they've done this with quite a number of housing associations over the last couple of years. And on the face of it, it is extremely concerning. However, it's also interesting that none of the housing associations that have fallen foul of the regulator, including this one, which is called Auckland, has actually missed a rental payment at all to Civitas. So I think it's just something to be acutely aware of. But I rate the Civitas management very highly and uh, they've had a lot to do with trying to um, bolster and improve the corporate governance of the housing associations and also bolster their board as well with appropriate appointees. So it's not a surprise to me, and it's very interesting. It had next to no effect on the Civitas or indeed Triple Point share prices. They both trade at single-digit premiums. They've had decent asset performance, but more especially the reason you would own it is, is for the dividend. They've got a yield of approaching 5% that's growing at 3 to 5%, which is not too bad at all. And I don't see anything to undermine that going forward. So um, something to be aware of. But I think the Civitas management are on top of this. And um, I think the share price is telling you that. Yes, I think uh, Civitas Social has said that they've slightly reduced their involvement with Auckland, but they've by no means uh, eliminated that. And, uh, of course, I mean, my reading of the, the notion of the regulators was that perhaps the housing associations have been a bit too generous to the investment trusts that have been backing them. But um, we'll have to see how that one plays out. As you say, they're still trading on premiums, and uh, you're a happy holder in any event. Well, I think the main thing is that the regulator is concerned about the housing associations signing very long-term leases with property owners, Civitas and Triple Point, and yet the rent they get in is kind of on a week-to-week, month-to-month basis. So it's, you know, borrowing along, it's mismatching your liabilities in theory. But actually, in practical terms, there's such massive demand for these properties that there's little chance of them being left vacant. So I take a more pragmatic view of this. And as I say earlier, I think the share price tells you that I don't think these companies are under quite as much pressure as you may think. Well, that is uh, often the case, the difference between appearance and reality. Let's move on then and talk about an investment trust, which I don't think you do own, but you have a, an interest in the sector, and this is renewable energy sector. Uh, we heard from this week from Bluefield Solar Income Fund, BSIF. They've completed two acquisitions. One is an operating portfolio of 109 small-scale onshore wind turbines, uh, and the second represents... Uh, grid connection and associated land of fully completed, ready-to-build solar assets and a co-located, as they call it, 25-megawatt battery project as well. So they're basically expanding. But the interesting thing about this one is that they are diversifying out of solar energy into wind. So is that the reason you don't own this? Or what? Uh, what is your exposure to this sector? And what do you think about the renewable energy sector? <laughs> Well, I think that the renewable energy sector is something that we all <laughs> want to do well because from a sort of wider perspective, it's important we do have growing uh, sources of renewable energy, wind, solar and the likes. I don't own Bluefield, 
solar and I never have done. The one I own in the sector is a renewable infrastructure group, which is also known as TRIG. And that is mainly wind, but it has got solar assets as well. And it is a UK, European sort of spread of assets there. In the case of Bluefield, it's been predominantly solar. I find it very interesting that at this stage of its development, it's suddenly moving on to onshore wind, which we're told are quite pricey. Valuations are very high in this area. So I just wonder what sort of price they've been paying for these wind turbines that they've acquired. I also, I, I mean, one of the things is, you know, the reason you hold these, apart from, you know, what they're hopefully helping in terms of the climate problems, once again, is dividends. And growing dividend, somewhat around about inflation or a little bit more, 5 6% dividend yield, that's quite attractive, let's be honest. Um, asset performance of some of these funds in terms of growth of asset value has been gradually diminishing and has been not really very strong of late. And a lot of improvement in asset value has been due to reduction in discount rates. And that's the way that these uh, solar farms and wind farms are valued. They're valued on a discount rate basis. Um, and so there could be more sought after. Yes, certainly values have gone up and that's a positive. But I think we've reached pretty much the end of that story now. And I think the other thing to focus on is power prices. Now, a lot of these companies, Triggers One, Two Fields, another one, have got long-term contracts, which is very heartening and gives you security of income. But gradually, these are winding down and they're becoming a bit more exposed to short-term power prices. And... Recently, power prices have been rising quite strongly, actually, this year, having declined for the last couple of years in 2020 and in 2019. So that's a short-term boost to the revenue of these companies. But one of the other key things is, which all of them include, is their long-term view of power prices over 20 and 30 years. And that's where it becomes much more difficult to judge and it seems like the long-term outlook for power prices is actually for them to be flat to maybe slightly lower. I guess as we source more of our power from renewables, they become more cost-efficient. And the upshot is actually that the power prices to the companies don't keep endlessly rising as happened in the past. So you've got a whole series of sort of factors there which are behind these companies. And of course, in the past, they've needed to be selling at premiums because they're always going to issue shares to acquire more wind and solar farms. My feeling is I think there is a proper valuation for these companies. Bluefield is selling at a very small 4% premium, and that's probably about right. I think if they attract values the way they once did of premiums of 10, 15, and 20%, that probably is too high now because let's face it, the reason you're owning this is the dividend income. And if you get any more return from that, well, well done. So my feeling is it's I would have this in the hold category, Jonathan, um, but no more than that. I mean, of course, as you mentioned before, the trust you manage has both an income and a growth portfolio. It's a, a fairly unique uh, and interesting vehicle in that respect. 
You say you own the renewables infrastructure group. So why do you own that one rather than any others? And why? And would you explain why you perhaps you don't own more of them for the income they produce? But why do you own that one in particular rather than these others? Well, I think in the case of the renewables infrastructure group, firstly, it's large, so liquidity is good. It's quite diversified. It's much more exposed to wind than solar. But I think ultimately the, the returns for the two are reasonably similar, but slightly different wind. But it's also geographically diversified. So it's got quite a bit in Scandinavia, as well as all around the UK, Scotland, England, Northern Ireland too. And it's also been expanding more into continental Europe. So you've got quite diversity there, um, which actually represents security as well. On top of that, the management company, it's the same company that manages Hickel, the big uh, core infrastructure group, they're called Infrared Partners. They've got a depth of resource and experience that's probably about the best in the sector. So for a number of these reasons, I lighted upon Renewables Infrastructure Group. And to be honest with you, it's also had a, quite a good dividend record and it's managing to continue to edge the dividend ahead, but it's now at the sort of 1% to 2% level at best. But that's the reason I own that one. Okay, so that's an interesting perspective on that particular sector. I'm going to ask you now, we had a couple of announcements this week, which I'm not going to describe in detail, but we've heard one from Seraphim Space Investment Trust, SSIT, where one of the companies uh, is doing a merger with a SPAC, one of these special purpose acquisition companies, which we may come up again in our conversation. And the shares have uh, commenced trading on the New York Stock Exchange. That in itself is not uh, particularly significant. But I want to uh, pair that with some interim results from another IPO called Literacy Capital, which I mentioned last week. Uh, that's ticker B-O-O-K book. Now, these are two very uh, recent arrivals on the London market. And they're both kind of very specialist. They're doing things that no other investment trust is doing at the moment. One's investing in space and associated businesses. The other one is a venture capital fund that is called the Literacy Capital because it's it's generating some of its returns to supporting a charitable purpose. Now, the reason I would link these two together is they've had their interim results this week, Literacy Capital, and they've shown a good NAV total return of 28% compared with 6.9% for the FTSE Investment Company Index and 9.3% uh, for the All Share Index over the six months to 30th of June. But the reason I, I mention this to you is because this is indicative. There have been a bit of a pickup in the number of IPOs coming to the market this year. So I wonder what you think about that trend and also how you go about judging whether or not to back these new IPOs. Is it something you often do or is it something in which you're very selective? And if so, on what basis do you approach an IPO when it comes to you? Well, that's a good question, Jonathan. I mean, I think, you know, I'm quite selective with IPOs. The answer is I do back some and have done in the past and probably will continue to do so in the future. I think when you look at IPOs, let's look at ones that are investing in equities. That doesn't happen all that often, but it has done in the past. And I tend to look for quite experienced fund managers who've got a good track record. And sometimes you get them spinning off into their own company or a boutique, much smaller fund management concern as opposed to you know, a big conglomerate that they perhaps come from. That can often be a very interesting state of affairs. They're highly motivated to be successful. They've already got 
a track record, you know they can do quite well. And if it's investing in an interesting area of the market as well, then it can certainly be worthwhile backing. And you tend to have some quite detailed meetings with them in terms of what their strategy for the investment vehicle is going forward. But there's also the ones that you've mentioned here that, that you know, Seraphin Space Investment Trust, I think, is a very interesting vehicle indeed. Now, it's quite high risk, but it could be in 10 years' time, this is a very substantial trust and has delivered excellent returns. At the same time, it's a lot of early stage investments, venture capital, quite high risk. Space is an area which is quite high risk as yet. And so, you know, I decided I'll keep a, a watching brief on this one and maybe come back to it in two or three years' time. Let's see how it's doing. I don't mind if its share price has gone up quite a bit, but if you see the portfolio evolving and developing and some serious companies within that portfolio are evolving and developing, then I think that's something that you might well return to with a more positive frame of mind. I do quite like this area. I'm not completely unexposed to it because a number of trusts I own, actually particularly in the Bailey Gifford stable, which have got exposure to um, some companies in the wider sort of space field. So it's not as if we've got nothing there, but this is a dedicated only vehicle. I think it is quite interesting. I'm delighted it's got listed, and it's one I'm going to be monitoring quite closely to let's just see how it develops. Um, and actually, there was another one um, recently too, investing mainly in hydrogen assets hydrogen being a potential alternative fuel, which is far more friendly to our, our climate. And the same story there. Let's just see how it evolves and develops over the next year or two. It may well be one that I might come back to at some stage. I think there are some interesting ideas there. But as yet, it's quite high risk, and it just may not come through. And so you just want to see it settle down, and let's see how the investments start performing. So that's my approach to that type of new issue. So if, if we just look back there over the last, say, six months or so, which IPOs have you participated in, if, if any? Well, one that I guess it kind of qualifies as an IPO that I invested in, it actually had a, a secondary C-share offering, but it was really its introduction to the UK market. It was one called the Shehalian Fund, which is actually run by Bailey Gifford. It's in private equity. Curiously, it's got one or two investments in the field of space, which we've just been referring to. But I was interested in this one. It had an existing portfolio in place of quite significant businesses, and it had already generated a decent year or so of returns. Bailey Gifford are well-resourced investment house um, with a focus on technology and new evolving areas. And the sorts of people that you'd feel quite happy to park your money with um, in this area. And they've just got, because they've got unique access, both really in the United States and to some extent China, to some really exciting companies. I felt, right, this is what we do want to participate in. And so we've got holding in the Shalian Fund. But again, you know, a bit like Seraphim, you've got to have a long-term view on this. It's not that it's going to do well or badly in the next quarter. It's one you really are holding on the five to 10 year view. 
Okay, so that's uh, an interesting development. Another one which I think we should mention as being uh, important announcement this week, though I know uh, you're not involved in this one, but I'm interested what you think about it, and that is the uh, developments at Pershing Square Holdings. I'm sure this is the trust probably you haven't thought about owning ever, but ticker PSH. We may know this is run by an American hedge fund manager, Bill Ackman, and uh, he's been launching one of these SPACs, and he's run into trouble with the regulators. And also, the SPAC is being sued by some, uh, in a suit led by two law professors, alleging that it is acting as an illegal investment company because of what it's been doing in the SPAC. I won't go through all the details here, but it's uh, quite an interesting corporate story. And it does have a bearing on Pershing Square Holdings, the, uh, the main investment vehicle in which Bill Ackman runs and which is listed over here. Again, we'll go through all the details. Though. We've got plenty of time to talk about that. It's the kind of thing that Simon was able to give us very detailed chapter and verse. But you don't own this. And uh, have you ever owned any of these listed hedge fund vehicles in the UK, uh, Peter? And if not, why not? Well, I, I have got one, yes. I mean, I don't own Pershing Square, which is one of these ones. It's, it's corporate governance could perhaps be a bit better. It's got, I think, two share classes. Or if it's not share classes, the management have got a much greater amount of voting power versus ordinary shareholders. And I'm always a little bit uncertain about it. Well, there's no doubt it had a fantastic year last year. Absolutely fantastic. I can't remember how. And it's a big trust. I mean, I'm going to say it's $4 billion in market value. It might even be more than that. But it's selling at a 27% discount. And there is a reason for that. Partly it's corporate governance. But also, it does take very large bets on a narrow range of stocks. What it was trying to do with Universal Music with this SPAC, which I have to say, we'll let you discuss that with Simon next time he's, he's on the podcast. Um, but it did seem that that was uh, of interest. But it would be an absolutely huge individual stock bet. And that's not really what I, or indeed I think most people involved in investment trusts are looking for. You want a level of diversification in your portfolio rather than just too much on one particular investment. So I think the 27% discount tells it all there. You know, if it didn't have some of these apparent drawbacks to it, it would be selling much closer to asset value. Now, you, you also asked if I do have one, and the answer is I do, and I have Actually, since it was listed in 2008, I've got some shares in the Brevin Howard Macro Fund or Investment Trust, which is wholly invested in the Brevin Howard Master Fund. It's completely different from Pershing Square. It's actually a very defensive vehicle. More than that, it's almost unique in that it performs in exactly opposite way to the way equity markets move. So if equities are having a real bear phase, you tend to find the BH macro fund actually produces some quite good positive returns. It's got nothing to do with equities. It's investing, it exploits opportunities to do with interest rates, currencies and bonds globally. And it's done quite well over the years, although it does go sideways for a long period of time if equities are doing quite well. But it's an example where, you know, that's a hedge fund. It's a large hedge fund. The investment trust is a feeder into that. But it does give very interesting performance dynamics. And I think it offsets some of the other holdings I've got in 
in the portfolio. And so I've had that one for actually quite a long time. And obviously there's been this recent merger between the two Brevin Howard funds, BH Global and BH Macro. Did you support that? Well, presumably you did. If you're still holding the shares, you must have supported that, even though the fees are going up again? Well, yes, is the answer. I did support it. So it's hopefully it'll be a larger vehicle and liquidity a bit better. Yes, it's unusual for the manager to say to the board, we are increasing our fees. And if you don't agree to that, we wind up the vehicle. Um, however, I think it should be remembered that three or four years before that, they did decrease the fees quite significantly. And so it was more getting the fees back to where they once were. My own view is the fees are still on the high side, but there's no doubt that this has a unique set of performance attributes. And I think the fact that uh, in this time of always looking for lower fees, the shareholders backed the manager tells you that you know what they thought of the quality of the underlying portfolio. So yes, I've still got some and hopefully we'll continue to, to own it. Okay, so we'll move on and talk about another announcement this week. Moving on to talking about some results now. And uh, BlackRock World Mining Trust, BRWM, which is a large uh, investment trust that uh, specializes, as its name suggests, in backing mining companies and also uh, has mining royalty streams from a number of uh, mining companies. They've had their interim results six months to 30th of June, and they made an NAV total return of 17.4% compared with a 16.5% return for the reference index. Though I do seem to remember they did change their reference index a few years ago, which is always something that is an interesting development. The share price total return was 18.9% because the discount narrowed slightly from 2.7% to 1.3% over the period to the 30th of June. And the trust has been uh, reissuing shares from Treasury at a premium. So this trust has been in demand this year because commodity prices have come roaring back with the uh, recovery from the pandemic. But is this a trust that you own? You have an income portfolio in your trust, but do you have either this or any other commodities income trusts in your portfolio? The answer is I don't, Jonathan. I did own BlackRock World Mining quite a number of years ago, but it went through prolonged difficult patch. Um, I think would be a a good way of describing it. I think they kind of were investing in slightly more esoteric mines, which didn't actually fully fulfill their potential. I think now they're back on the straight and narrow. These results refer to the last six months, but the last 12 to 18 months have been pretty good. It's on a strong recovery tag. And there's no doubt they're now back doing what they're best at. And this is a play on the outlook for commodities in terms of demand for them and pricing, key commodities being iron ore and copper. And so if you looked at the performance of some of the big mining companies, um, RTZ, BHP, which is in the news this week, and even to some extent Anglo-American also, they all had quite a good period. And a lot of that is to do with rising commodity prices, the time of economy is recovering from the pandemic quite strongly and there has been little or no investment in new mines for a very long time. So if you own the existing mines, then you're doing very nicely, thank you, and probably will continue to for some time yet. So I think it does surprise me that this fund's done quite well. It's quite a big fund and uh, the fact it's selling on a 2% discount and has been issuing shares is a positive for it. 
quite how it sits in the world of ESG and environmental and social issues, I'm not quite so sure. So I kind of tended to steer clear of it, not solely on those grounds, but I don't think it would sit too easily with funds or portfolios which had an ESG component to their mandate. But that said, undeniably, it's been doing quite well of late. Yes, the dividends are up, but I think my memory serves me right, the dividend was cut quite sharply um, a couple of years ago, and so it's not got quite as high yield as it may first appear. So that's my view. If you're bull in commodities, this is the way to play it, there's no doubt. Okay, so we can move on and now talk about Temple Bar Investment Trust. This also had interim results out the 30th of June. NAV total return was 19.3% against the all shares 11.1%. So certainly some outperformance there. I'm sure that uh, listeners will recall that this trust changed its manager last year after a long period of poor performance and the retirement of its former manager, Alistair Mundy. Uh, it's now managed by uh, RWC Asset Management and the board has decided to stick with the very strong tradition of value investment that was always a characteristic of Temple Bar in its old days. Uh, so rather than ask you about that in particular, I think you might have owned it once upon a time, Peter, but you don't own it now, I don't think. How do you factor these style issues in your portfolio? You've obviously got a significant number of investment trusts in your portfolio, both in the income and the growth portfolios. And uh, how do you uh, think about style in terms of value versus growth or small versus large cap and so on? What's your approach to that? And does Temple Bar potentially fit into that in any way? I mean, the answer is it does potentially because it's got a very clear style bias to it, which I quite like, actually. What I would say is I think Temple Bar is, uh, it is something that will come onto my investment horizon. It's already there. I'm not currently an owner, but I could easily be at some stage. It's got a very clear investment approach. It always has done. And it's what's called a value-driven approach. And so what is that? That tends to mean your portfolio will be filled with companies in sectors like oils, banks, retail, industrial, leisure, typically quite cyclical companies that can have their ups, have their downs, companies that quite often thrive on a bit of inflation. And of course, our inflation has risen a little bit recently and maybe higher in the next year or two. And so if you think about that, the last few years up until really last year, it's been a headwind for these types of companies and also investment trusts with that type of stylistic approach because it's all been about you know growth technology healthcare new areas digital and these types of new growth areas which have usurped the sort of more traditional companies and so you see in in what's contributed to the recent temple bar results royal mail group aviva natwest bank bp and the likes these are all tried and tested companies. They've perhaps not got the greatest growth characteristics, but they can have two or three good years and they're quite cyclical as well. Now, over recent years, it's been right to avoid value type investments and focus on newer industries, more growth orientated, as I explained earlier. However, 
things changed with the announcement of vaccines in November of last year, and markets then immediately looked forward to recovery from the pandemic, the reopening of economies, and a whole raft of different sectors doing a lot better. And that's exactly where the likes of Temple Bar and some other investment companies too in the UK equity area have done really quite well. And the fact they've had a strong returns over the past six months, 19% against 11% for the all share index, tells you that they are invested in some of these cyclical companies that are recovering and will benefit from a reopening of the economy. Now, how much further has this got to go? My own feeling is it could have quite a bit further to go. And so that's why I, I have invested some more in these types of trusts, not actually Temple Bar as yet, but it's one I'm keeping my eye on. And um, these are certainly quite, quite good results that they've delivered. Yes, it's been interesting to see that the discount came in quite a long way, having widened quite sharply, came in quite a long way when the value style started to outperform quite strongly. Uh, but it's gone out again now and it's uh, it's moved out quite a, a little way. It's getting close to a double digit discount again. So it has been interesting. It has been really responding to the style, uh, feel like currents in the market. Uh, but from a long term point of view, I think uh, you, you could well be right, could you not? I mean, the, there could be more for value to go. So certainly over the summer, um, yes, sort of June, July, um, you've had a pause in these types of funds performing. And I think that's partly due to beginning to have some doubts, as we mentioned at, at the start of this podcast, Jonathan, doubts about perhaps the strength of the recovery, infection rates in different parts of the world, and also what might happen to interest rates as well, which could put a dampener on things. So all of these are uncertainties. But I think looking ahead, I do believe there'll be quite a strong recovery, certainly in the UK, uh, you know, for the second half of this year and into next year. And so these types of, of trusts should do quite well, even if discounts have moved out a bit, arguably that could be an opportunity. Does that, by the same token, imply that if these kind of trusts with a strong value style continue and a number of cyclicals in there continue to do well, does it automatically follow that uh, some of the more growth-oriented trusts, you know, the ones that have done so well recently, could uh, suffer in relative terms at least? They may do for a while, and they certainly do, kind of November through to April, May of this year, and the focus was off then. It wasn't that the underlying companies were doing badly, it's just that the market had moved on to something that was uh, changing. I don't think there's any doubt that technology companies, healthcare, biotechnology, that whole area, that offers some real secular growth characteristics where you'll get some major winners over the next five to 10 years. And so intuitively, you would want to still be exposed there, but maybe that your level of exposure is perhaps reduced a bit for a year or two as these more cyclical value-orientated investment styles perform. That's my belief that could happen. Let's see if it unfolds like that, but I think that's the way that, that investors have been thinking you know, recently. Okay, so let's talk now about another sector, and this is uh, Syncona. This is rather a specialist vehicle. It's broadly in the health sector, and it trades at a premium. Uh, and this is one I think you do own. They've had a quarterly update for the three months to 30th of June. NAV return was down minus 7.7% over the period. 
and the life sciences portfolio total return was minus 13.9%. One of their uh, bigger investments, which is a company called Freeline, where the uh, share price has been falling, they've announced that they are appointing a new CEO. However, what do you think about Syncona, and uh, are you still a holder of it, and what are you expecting from it? Well, the answer is I am still a holder of it. It's in the biotechnology sector. It's got now three companies, Freeline, Otolus, and one called Achilles, all of whom are now listed on NASDAQ in the US. And actually, the fact that the returns are negative is mainly due to those three listed companies, because just as we've been talking about return of value-orientated investment approaches, the biotech sector has had a tough period in the last few months, having done extremely well previous couple of years, and you've had quite sharp sell-offs, which is reflected in these results from Syncona. They've also got a number of other companies which are um, not listed, they're private companies, predominantly British, incidentally, um, often coming from UK universities initially. But Syncona have, I think, got a very strong management team who are uniquely placed to develop these companies. Its major shareholder is the Wellcome Trust, which is the world's biggest medical charity. And the Wellcome Trust has huge resource in this area. And you know, a number of the, the managers of Syncona come from the Wellcome Trust. And what they are particularly skilled at is taking a great idea from a couple of professors developed in a laboratory in a British university and being able to ultimately commercialise it. And that takes uh, quite a bit of time. You've got to go through all the various trial processes before it gets ultimately gets approved. But that's the Syncona skill, is identifying which ones to take further and which can genuinely perhaps be ultimately sold on, or in the case of the three names I mentioned earlier, become listed companies. So all of that's very exciting and can lead to huge returns over the long run, but they can be very lumpy. And actually, if you looked at sort of 2018, 2019, they had great returns. They're going through what I would describe as a much quieter patch just now, but looking ahead to next year, there's a number of big milestone announcements coming from the underlying companies, which if they pass trials and things like that, you will see some quite significant you know, returns from the underlying companies, which hopefully will reflect in the Sincona net asset value. So it's one that it'll either be at the top of the performance tables or the bottom of the performance tables on any one quarter or six-month period. But if you genuinely believe in British life sciences, then this is the vehicle to own, um, is Syncona. And I think it's an extremely well-run runs A guy by the name of Martin Murphy is absolutely outstanding. So I've got it down as a long-term hold. And hopefully it's one that we're coming back to in due course, Jonathan, seeing how well it's performed, maybe in a year or two's time. It certainly has uh, some good ESG credentials as well, I suppose one could say. Okay, so now let's just finish then by talking a little bit more about your trust and what you've been doing with it. I have to say you've had a very good year. You've just produced your annual results. Both the share classes have performed well over the last 12 months, uh, up about 30% in both cases, I think. That's in the financial year to the 31st of May. The growth shares delivered a slightly superior total return on NAV basis. 
both share classes outperformed the all share index, which was up 23% over the same period. And also most of the flexible investment peer group average. So all in all, that's been a pretty good year for you, Peter, has to be said. So let's be uh, fair about this and say, does that reflect the fact that the year end to May last year would have been quite a tough period for you, I imagine, because you were just coming out of the pandemic. But um, what are you to attribute your uh, your good results to in the past 12 months? Well, in terms of the growth portfolio, which does not pay a dividend and is focused only on capital growth, and it's got a high representation in investment companies who are heavily exposed to the technology area, biotechnology, as we've just been talking about with Syncona, and also healthcare. And all of these trusts performed extremely strongly last year, or they performed extremely strongly in 2020. Things did change a bit from November onwards, and as I referred earlier in the podcast to the, the announcement of the first vaccine from Pfizer on the 9th of November. And suddenly the market shifted more towards recovery type investment companies that have got a value style, as we've touched on earlier. So in the 12 months to end May, we had an absolutely fantastic first six months that actually lagged the all share a bit in the second six months as some of the stocks and investment companies have done so well simply the sort of spotlight shifted away from them. It wasn't that the underlying companies did badly. Um, the income portfolio, similar type of attributes, perhaps, you know, because it's it has got an income element to the mandate, we have to have more value-orientated trusts. And so it kind of performed about in line with the market in the second half of the year, but had a very good first half of the year. Again, also driven by um, some biotech, holdings and private equity. Private equity has been a very strong uh, contributor to both the growth and the income portfolios and is an area that I would say to private investors, have a look at some of the private equity trusts. I think they are on discounts and they have got some interesting prospects. So what have I been doing uh, really since the you know, beginning of the year? I have been steadily increasing my holdings in UK equity trusts. And that's principally to take advantage of a recovering economy, particularly in the UK. So if we focused on trusts which are invested in domestic companies, will tend to be mid and small caps. That's where not only are you getting strong recovery, but actually the valuations are very attractive as well, which is what interests me. And so I've been buying Fidelity Special Values, Lord Adventure, Lowland, Artemis Alpha, Aurora, Henderson Smaller Companies. These are the types of trusts which are focused on the UK and have actually delivered some quite strong returns over the last six months or so. And I think, although they've had a pause in recent weeks, I think will be quite well placed going into uh, the fourth quarter of this year and 2022. I haven't as yet come out of some of the more technology-orientated investment trusts. And I don't think I will come out of them completely, but I may reduce my exposure a bit to get more confident in the duration of this economic recovery that we're seeing in the UK. And so I think that's a decision that's out there perhaps sometime in the autumn or over the winter. But that's mainly been what I've been doing is kind of 
having had two very overseas-orientated trusts, actually been beginning to increase exposure back into the UK a bit. How have you managed to do that? What have you been getting rid of or reducing uh, to allow you to do that? Well, I did have some a bit of cash, to be honest with you, to, to start with, so I redeployed that. And I've sold one or two holdings where I was slightly uh, in the income portfolio, I sold Utilico Emerging Markets. Not that it was a bad trust or anything, but I just had better ideas. And if you've got a fixed pool of capital, it's not that you sell something and it may not be because it's, you know, it's doing that badly. It's just that you've got a, what you believe to be a, a new idea, a new trust that's got more prospects for or better returns. And, you know, I've certainly done that. And actually in the growth portfolio, I sold Murray International, which was one of the few stocks I had in both income and growth. And there's three or four stocks which kind of qualify for both. I just felt Murray International, I think, is a definite hold in the income portfolio. It's got great dividend record, will continue to have. But I think the capital growth prospects of it just weren't quite as compelling as some of the uh, investment trusts I've just mentioned to you, like, for example, Fidelity Special Values or Log Adventure or Artemis Alpha or Aurora. And all of these have got fund managers very motivated, quite experienced in some cases. Alex Wright for Fidelity Special Values, James Henderson and Laura Fall for Lowland and Log Adventure. Aurora is run by Phoenix Asset Management, and that's Gary Channon, the interesting, different style of investment. Very different. And Artemis is actually a younger chap by the name of Kartik Kumar, who knows his companies extremely well and has, has begun to develop quite a strong record there. That's kind of investment I prefer, where you've got a definable style from the underlying manager that I can understand. It has to be something I can understand, and as goodness knows, there's plenty I don't. Um, but, but that's typically what I've been doing of late, and I kind of feel I've got half to two-thirds of the way through that. Um, I've paused it over the summer, but hopefully we'll return to doing some more in the UK and maybe one or two European trusts for next year. And just to looking at the income trust then, what sort of dividend yield does the income portfolio pay and how does that compare to the yield on the market overall? Because obviously I imagine that one of the key selling points to a trust is the fact that uh, you have this uh, sustainable yield and that's obviously of interest to people who are looking for that. So where are you at in yield? Well, Yes, I mean, the the yield on the all-share index at the moment, Jonathan, is 2.8%. And the yield on the income portfolio of the managed portfolio trust is about 4.3%. And Jonathan, I can reveal to you exclusively, as of earlier this week, following our final year dividend announcement, we've made it onto the Association of Investment Companies next generation dividend heroes list. To qualify for that, you have to have 10 years of consecutive growth. And we grew the dividend. I know it was only by 2% last year, but remember there was lots of cut dividends in the market. So the fact we managed to grow the dividend by 2% and actually cover the dividend from earnings as well, not out of reserves, I think was a good achievement. So 4.3% yield, and, you know, with a fair win, we hope to be able to, our, our target is to try and increase the dividend again in the coming year. 
Uh, and with a bit of luck, we should be able to to try and do that. Well, that's a, a splendid track record and a milestone to achieve. So congratulations on that. Peter, I think that's pretty much bringing us to the end. We've had a interesting conversation. It's always good to get your perspective on things from your Scottish fastness up there. And uh, <laughs> I wish you well for the future. But uh, thank you very much for sharing your thoughts with us uh, this week. Jonathan, thank you very much. And I'm sure your listeners to the podcast will be too pleased to have Simon Elliott back at the helm next week. Well, who knows? He may have gone slightly mad with being liberated from the office for two <laughs> weeks. Anyway, we'll find out next week. So that is the end of this week's podcast. For those of you who are interested in the Moneymakers Circle, we have some more interesting material there this week. We have a profile of the uh, Fundsmith Equity Fund, a very popular open-ended fund run by Terry Smith. And there's also a Q&A with Gervais Williams, another UK specialist fund manager who runs the Diverse Income Trust, among other things, which I think you also own, Peter. But uh, uh, that said, uh, that's it for this week. This has been a Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. These podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on all leading podcast channels. You can sign up on the Moneymakers website, www.money-makers.co, to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Thank you for listening. And if you want more news, analysis, interviews, and other investment trust content, don't forget to take a look at our premium service, The Moneymakers Circle, available now at the website.